Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Turkey is nearing its most dramatic election in decades. Almost a century after the establishment of the Republic and following 20 years of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's rule, Ankara seems like it's at a pivotal moment. It has soaring inflation, an earthquake that claimed the lives of more than 50,000 people, and a range of other problems that Erdogan and rival politicians all claim that they alone can fix. The elections take place on May 14, and the stakes are high for Turkey, of course, but also for the world. Turkey's a NATO member. It plays a crucial part in the war in Ukraine, and it's important to the Middle East, to Europe, the United States, and far beyond. Now, the majority of Turkey's opposition has rallied behind Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the leader of the Republican People's Party. Kılıçdaroğlu, who's sometimes referred to as Turkey's Mahatma Gandhi, has differentiated himself from Erdogan, framing himself as a modest leader, often addressing constituents from his kitchen in videos. His campaign is focused on strengthening democracy, easing a cost-of-living crisis, and battling corruption. Kilicharolu is currently just a shade ahead of Erdogan in the polls, but you can never write off the man who has run Turkey for so long. So what should we expect May 14? What are the driving issues in this election? And if Erdogan loses, and we have to consider this, will there be a peaceful transition of power? I have two excellent guests this week, Gonul Tol is the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program. She's the author of the recently published book, Erdogan's War, A Strong Man's Struggle at Home and in Syria. And Stephen Cook is a familiar face at FP. He's our Middle East columnist and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions, which I often ask on their behalf. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live and in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. And let's dive in. Gonul Tol, Stephen Cook, welcome to FB Live. I thought we'd start with this. Give us just a bit of a a 101 roundup. So we have Erdogan, we have Kilicharolu, there are other contenders. What are the defining issues of this election? There are actually four presidential candidates. The two main candidates are President Erdogan, Kilic Dorolo, as you mentioned, the opposition's previous presidential candidate in 2018, Muharrem Ince, and uh, another an independent candidate named Sinan Oğun. The major issues that are animating Turks go- throughout this election have really been the economy, which has struggled for years now. There has been a lira crisis in Turkey for at least since 2019, but beforehand. And Erdogan's management of the economy is an issue. Then, of course, there is, as you mentioned in your lead-in, the February 6th earthquake and the government's response to it. But not just the government's response, but the way in which uh, developers, contractors that are close to the government were able to skirt regulations regarding the construction of uh, office buildings, homes, uh, apartment blocks that literally toppled over during this terrible, terrible earthquake. And then finally, uh, Kilic Stroll has put and the and the alliance that he leads, which is called the Nation Alliance, sometimes referred to as the Table of Six, have put on the table the idea that Turkey will return to a 
parliamentary system if Kilich derailed about and paved the way for a more democratic Turkey, uh, essentially a return to the past where Turkey had a parliamentary system, or actually a, a, a hybrid uh, a parliamentary presidential system that many regard, and I think quite rightly, was a period when Turkey was more democratic, if not a democracy. Mm. So much to unpack there. Gonal, you've written a book about Erdogan. Uh, we know he was prime minister in 2003. Then he became president in 2014. He's led the country for 20 years. So far, what is his legacy? Well, um, it depends on who you talk to, Ravi. If you talk to a strong Erdogan supporter, many people uh, think that he's a freedom fighter. Uh, thanks to Erdogan, um, women especially, they uh, are able to wear their headscarves in state institutions. And there is now a large uh, conservative middle class and Erdogan lifted them out of poverty. Uh, and they see them as a man who came to power and uh, provided freedom. But if you talk to um, Erdogan's critics, he's a dictator in the making. He's not there yet, but he's done a lot of damage to the country's aspiring democracy. He monopolized power in his own hands and he destroyed the country's institutions and he brought everything under his control. So um, his critics uh, think that if he wins another term, Turkey will degenerate further into autocracy. And if you ask me, I think um, before Erdogan came to power, Turkish democracy was never perfect. Um, but I think he took this centralization of power to a whole new level, something that we have not seen before. And I think that's how he will be remembered. Mm. And let's just spend a beat on the earthquake. Gonal, uh, you've written about this for FP there must be a lot of anger about the way in which uh, a the response to the earthquake but also leading up to it the fact that there were certain uh, construction issues uh, issues with uh, emergency response systems how much anger might there be about this earthquake and how much of an issue is it going to be in this election when I was there on the ground, Ravi, I saw a lot of frustration. Uh, we the, the worst earthquake before this one happened in 1999. Um, and at the time, I was a college student. And uh, we mobilized a group of volunteers at the time to go there to the earthquake zone to help the victims. And we when we arrived there, it was shortly before, shortly after the earthquake, 24 hours, we saw Turkish troops there. We saw Turkish civil society, rescue agencies uh, working there, taking part in, uh, in search and rescue efforts. This time around, there was no one for almost 72 hours. Troops were not deployed, no Turkish, no civil society, no rescue agencies. So people were left alone. And, and at the time, everyone was really angry, really frustrated. And Erdogan himself, he came, he visited the uh, the earthquake hit uh, regions uh, a few days after the earthquake hit. So there was a lot of anger. Um, but I would say this, I think many of us at the time had expected uh, that this would translate into a huge drop in support for Erdogan. It hasn't really played out that way because I think what we saw was, what, what we saw here in this country right after uh, COVID hit, there was a surge in support for President Trump, for instance. During national crises, 
like this. People rally around the president because there's so much uncertainty. And I think that's what we saw. And that was one of the reasons why Erdogan wanted to hold the elections uh, on time because time was not on his side. But I, I think one of the main impacts of the earthquake was there was a surge in support for Erdogan before the earthquake hit. Uh, and that surge stopped because of the earthquake. And the opposition parties, uh, quite frankly, I was really impressed by their quick response. Many of the municipalities uh, in the country uh, are run by the main opposition party, the secularist uh, CHP, and they mobilized their resources pretty fast. When I was there, um, I could see trucks, I could see aid workers uh, and, and opposition municipalities helping mm. on the ground and taking part in search and rescue efforts. So mm. it did have a dramatic impact on Erdogan's popularity, but I think it just uh, rebuilt the image, burnished the opposition's image as a party that can handle crises mm. like so, Stephen, given everything Gonal says about the quake and the impact it's had on perceptions of Erdogan and the opposition, and then you have the economy. I was struck when Gonal said that one of Erdogan's legacies is that he's seen as having improved the economy or lifted people out of poverty. And yet you have the fact that the lira, which fell to an all-time low against the dollar in March, People are struggling with inflation. Uh, I was also in Istanbul last year, and it's it's all anyone would talk to me about. Explain this to me. When you have tough economic times, usually the incumbent becomes very, very unpopular, and yet Erdogan is still very much in the running. How? Right. It's a, it's a great question. And just let me pick up on a couple of things that Gunu mentioned with regard to the earthquake. Uh, first, you know, going back to the 1999 Izmit earthquake, the Gunu portrayed that as being, you know, uh, in contrast to how the current government has handled this, or the recent earthquake, that at the time was seen as largely incompetent and was one of the factors that helped give rise to this reformist wing of Turkey's Islamist movement that ultimately led to the Justice and Development Party. I think what you saw in the inability to bring relief is one of the corrosive effects of the extreme centralization of power in Turkey, which Erdogan really is the sun around which the universe revolves. And very few decisions can be made without his approval. So that it's no wonder uh, it's, it, it, that it was difficult to deploy the resources necessary to provide relief uh, in any kind of uh, rapid way because Erdogan is the only one who can make a decision. That was not the case in 1999 or previously in Turkey. And once again, it speaks to this kind of elected autocracy that he has created, uh, which also has a cult of personality. Now, when it comes to the economy, I think that those who are supporters of Erdogan do recognize and see how well they did previously. Earlier years of AKP rule brought um, improvements in terms of infrastructure, economic opportunity, uh, health care, all kinds of things. In fact, there was a growing, large growing middle class throughout much of the AKP period. I remember way back in 2013 when I was in Turkey during the Gezi Park protests, um, uh, not only did I observe those protests, but I also observed the very, very large, so large that they dwarfed the Gezi Park protests uh, uh, 
public demonstrations of support for Erdogan. And these were hundreds of thousands of people who were clearly from Turkey's new conservative middle class who saw that their economic prospects had improved over the previous 10 years of AKP rule. What we've seen recently, however, is economic mismanagement on the part of Erdogan that he saw in his political prospects continued growth, continued growth, continued growth, no matter what it did. And that meant continued low interest rates. The idea of hiking interest rates, which would put the squeeze on his core constituency, who in this period, rapid period of economic development, suddenly discovered credit, would have damaged the AKP and its brand. So he has resisted orthodox economic policies that would have put the Turkish economy on, on the right track. But nevertheless, there are these kinds of X factors for Turkey. The memory that Erdogan and the AKP expanded the economy, gave people new opportunities. Uh, the idea that um, this is a, a, a conservative middle class and the idea that that Erdogan and the AKP has transformed Turkey. This is one of the legacies of 20 years of AKP's rule in which not necessarily religion, Turkey is not a theocracy, but religious values sort of are have been given uh, a, a greater um have been emphasized in a greater way and then and now kind of circulate through Turkish society in ways that it hadn't before is something that I think is very important in helping Erdogan uh, remain afloat during these very tough economic times. Then, of course, there is always this issue of blaming the others and the outsiders. Uh, for mm -hmm. the better part of the last 10 years, Erdogan, anytime Turkey has run into economic headwinds, has blamed the interest rate lobby, the CIA, Zionists, and the United States. And there's reason to believe, particularly in the case of the United States, that we had been a problem. President Trump, after all, tweeted at one point that he would crash the Turkish economy. So there is, and given the reservoir of anti-Americanism in Turkey, those are things that help keep Erdogan afloat. The last mm. point here, and something that you made, which is I think is very interesting, it speaks to one, the deficits of the of, of the opposition, but also these legacies of, of, of Erdogan's rule, is that given the economic problems in the country, given the devastation of the earthquake uh, and the laggard response to it, it is surprising that Erdogan is even in the game, that the polls are so close and that it really is neck and neck. It speaks to a polarized society where people are going to vote regardless, regardless of what their pocketbook says. It's based on cultural and identity issues. And I think that's what's going to make this extremely, extremely close. Gonal, one more beat on Erdogan and the various constituencies and how they might vote young people. Um, there are 5 million new voters in this election, I think, than the last one. Polls suggest that the AKP is losing support with younger Turks, but also with what has usually been a reliable pillar of support um, for it, conservative women. Why? Well, before that, Ravi, if I could, going back to the question that you raise is, is a very important one, because obviously political scientists always say that people everywhere in the world, they uh, they vote with their pocketbooks. So is Turkey an exception? Uh, because Erdogan's support is still somewhere between 40 to 45%. And after having been in power for 20 years, that's really impressive. So going back to what uh, Steve just said, I think here the most important thing is, is the identity politics. It plays a large role in Turkey's uh, politics 
Um, because if you look at who is still voting for Erdogan, you'll see that there are those who fear that if the opposition comes to power, they will lose the rights and privileges that they have secured under Erdogan. And then you have those who are very frustrated with the way Erdogan has been running the country's economy. And yet this hasn't really translated into a change of side. They, they decided not to vote for, they don't support the opposition. And the reason is because I think they don't really have faith in the opposition's ability to fix the country's problems. So this is a country that is deeply polarized and people are still fearful. Even now, uh, people are constantly talking about the, the, the people that I talked to when I was in Turkey last time, veiled women, for instance, they fear that if the opposition comes to power, they will be forced to take off their, their headscarves. And Erdogan is really exploiting that. So he has been uh, dialing up culture wars. He uses uh, the Sunni Muslim symbols as nationalist identity markers and rallying cries. And he campaigns at mosques, for instance. Just two weeks ago, um, he campaigned at a mosque and he falsely claimed that if the opposition comes to power, they will close down the directorate of religious affairs, for instance. And he ostracizes the LGBTQ community, for instance. And that is really, um, that has an impact uh, on his voters. So, uh, so playing that card, identity card, has always worked for Erdogan. But what makes it make, makes it less useful for Erdogan this time around is the fact that the opposition is very diverse. Uh, you have Islamists, you have secularists, you have nationalists, you have Turks, you have Kurds in the opposition ranks, and Kılıçdaroğlu, who is the opposition's presidential candidate. His candidacy has been announced uh, by the leader of the Islamist party, who is in the opposition ranks from the building of that opposition party. And I found it really striking. Uh, Atatürk, which is, uh, who is the, the country's uh, secular uh, founding father, his picture was hung on that Islamist party building. So that was symbolically very powerful. You have veiled women who are running on the CHP's list, the, the, the opposition party list, they are going door to door asking uh, people to vote for Kılıçdaroğlu. So symbolically, that's, I think, very powerful. And that really denies Erdogan uh, the opportunity to claim monopoly over conservative values, mm -hmm. which makes playing that identity card less useful. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, he's lagging behind Kılıçdaroğlu. And young people, you're right, it's a very important constituency. Millions of young people will be voting. Um, and Erdogan is not popular among them. An overwhelming majority of the young people will be voting for Kılıçdaroğlu because they cannot see a future for themselves in this country. There is a huge brain drain. They feel that the level of repression is unbearable. Um, uh, but but then you have nationalism is a very strong current. It cuts across party lines. But you have a uh, a marginal nationalist youth that is um, that finds Erdogan's nationalist rhetoric very appealing. So although the overwhelming majority will not be voting for him, you still have uh, have a group of young people 
who think that mm. Erdogan has done great. He made Turkey great again. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which we often use to frame these discussions. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Viewers and listeners, you all know the drill. We often take your questions wherever you are in the world. So do send them in. We have some terrific ones already. And in fact, I'm going to take one right now and pose it to Stephen Cook. This question is from a basketball star who also happens to be an FP fan. His name is Anes Cantor Freedom. And his question goes as follows. If Erdogan loses, how do you think the people will react to any resistance from him to a peaceful transfer of power. Stephen? Well, thanks very much. And it's great to get the question from, from, from Ennis, who has been extraordinarily outspoken about the authoritarianism of and consolidation of power uh, on Erdogan. He is clearly a, a, an opponent of, uh, of the Turkish government. It's a, it's a very, very good question, I think, because there is a scenario in which um, Erdogan loses, but tries to remain in power. We have cases of this in President Trump, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, neither of those could stay in power. And there is a fear that Erdogan actually has the resources that neither President Trump nor Jair Bolsonaro had in order to try to remain in power, whether it's financial resources, whether it is the support of various constituencies of his presidency that are powerful and influential to try to make that happen. It, it, it seems clear to me that given how divided the country is, at least half of the Turkish public will come out into the streets to demand that uh, the election win, if it should happen, of Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu's stand. You know, look, I mentioned before, and we've discussed throughout this conversation about the authoritarianism in Turkey. But one thing that sets Turkey apart from other authoritarian systems, the authoritarian systems in the Middle East, is that Turks have internalized the idea of elections and their votes count. Uh, and we do have, you know, a number of cases during the AKP era in which Erdogan maneuvered to overturn election results that he didn't like. In one case, he was successful. In the June 2015 general election, the AKP lost its majority in the parliament, and he and his advisors sabotaged government coalition talks in order to force a new election that in which, in November of 2015, the AKP regained its parliamentary majority, which was quite obviously an advantage for, uh, for Erdogan. Uh, we do have another case in 2019 when the AKP's candidate, the former prime minister, Bin Ali Yildirim, lost the mayoralty of Istanbul and they tried to force uh, a force into election. They did. And the current mayor who had won the first time won even bigger in the second round. So you can't really, as a Turkish saying goes, you can't bathe in the same bathwater twice, which I think is good advice. Um, it, it strikes me that um, Erdogan may not pursue those similar tactics, but may try in another way to remain in power. But I think that, like I said, Turks value 
and give meaning to their votes. However compromised Turkey's democratic practices have become in the last 20 years, and, and they were never perfect, as Gunil pointed out, um, they do value their vote. So I would expect large numbers of people, and that's worrying because of the AKP's ability and willingness to bring force to bear on other people. I mentioned earlier, I was at the Gezi Park protests, and the riot police spared no one uh, during those things. And this is a, a higher stakes affair for Erdogan. We know after the attempted coup in 2016, they began arming uh, cadres that were uh, uh, supportive of the AKP and the continuation of rule. This would be mm -hmm. a very dangerous scenario, but one that I think that policymakers and officials in the United States, in Europe, Turkey's allies in NATO need to be aware of that it is, a, I think, a, a strong possibility that he will try to remain in power in the event of a, uh, an event of a loss, especially, especially a close, close, close defeat. Mm. Now, we'll come to uh, the rest of the world and foreign policy issues in a few more minutes. But Gonul, I think we should spend a beat on uh, Kemal Kilcharolu. We've, we've talked about him a little bit. We've mostly talked about Erdogan. Um, tell us a little bit about Kilcharolu. Why, why is he referred to as the country's Gandhi. Uh, what is he known for? And were he to become president, how would his Turkey be different from Erdogan's? Uh, well, Ravi, if I could just say a few things about, um, about elections, uh, I think it's really easy to get cynical about elections in Turkey because uh, we've long defined Turkey as an autocratic regime. Um, and whenever I talk about uh, Turkish elections, I always get this response. Why are you so excited about the elections? Do elections really matter? And my answer to that question is, um, I think in it is a fact that Turkey has become a competitive authoritarian regime. Now, it's authoritarian because elections are not free and fair, but it's competitive enough. And you'll see that if you talk to anyone in Turkey. There's just so, ma so much excitement, so much mobilization, particularly among the opposition supporters. So I find that really striking. People still, despite all the problems with previous elections, and Steve laid this out, people still have faith in the electoral process. They still think that change is possible through elections. And I find that remarkable. And that's what makes me hopeful about the prospects of the opposition. And autocrats, um, even they need elections because they try not to engage in the crudest forms of election rigging because they need the legitimacy, right? So that's why they try more sophisticated methods to rig the election. So there is a scenario in which if the opposition wins by a narrow margin, let's say one, two point margin, it is possible for Erdogan not to accept results, but it's going to be costly, I think. And Steve talked about this. In 2019, when Erdogan lost Istanbul, he didn't accept the results and he called for a rerun. And he lost Istanbul elections by even a bigger margin. So there's this, that risk. And I think he's learned a lesson from 2019. Um, and I think the key question here is in that scenario, where will Turkish bureaucracy stand? Let's say Erdogan doesn't accept the results and he calls on his supporters to take to the streets 
And this time, I think the opposition supporters, something we, we did not see before, but the hope among the opposition supporters is so, so strong that they will take to the streets. So in such a scenario, you can easily see street violence. So in that scenario, the question is, where will Turkish bureaucracy stand, right? That will really uh, shape the course of events. And I'm, I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that the bureaucracy will be will back Erdogan and Erdogan who has lost. And we've seen signs of that just um, in January. I mean, a lot of what you're describing, Gonul, could sound like uh, civil war territory. Um, I could see maybe not as that dramatic, but I think I could easily see a scenario in which if Erdogan doesn't accept the results, people will take to the streets and you could see street violence. That is a possibility. So the question is, what will Turkey's top electoral body do, for instance, or Turkey's security forces will do? Uh, and I think we've seen signs that suggest that they, the Turkish bureaucracy is hedging its bets. Uh, for instance, Turkish Constitutional Court, it had made a decision in January that would deny the pro-Kurdish party uh, state funds uh, that was necessary to run its campaign. And it reversed that decision despite protests from Erdogan. And we've seen other decisions from mm -hmm. the country's top electoral body uh, taken against Erdogan's wishes. So all those things tell me that there is a scenario in which if Erdogan doesn't accept the result and if there's street violence, the bureaucracy might not back. Right. And I think that will be the key. Right. So uh, Erdogan looms large. Uh, Stephen, maybe uh, just to spend a, a minute or two on Kilic Darolu, tell us about uh, what his basic platform looks like and what Turkey under him, uh, how it would look and, and how it would be different from Erdogan's Turkey. Well, thanks for the question. The reason why we keep going back to Erdogan is, as I said, he seems to be the sun around which the Turkish universe revolves. But uh, Kilic Daroglu is, just to give some background to those who don't aren't, aren't up there, is a former uh, Turkish, uh, he is, he's an economist and a, a technocrat himself who has found uh, himself through his own skill to be the leader of the main opposition. He is a very different um, personality than than Erdogan, and I think he is banking on the fact that Turks have grown tired of uh, President Erdogan's sort of tough guy uh, approach to politics. He's really played up the idea that he, you know, hails from a a, a tough neighborhood of Istanbul, whereas uh, Kılıçdaroğlu has taken a quieter approach to it. Um, that um, he is the uh, the man who can bring democracy back to Turkey, and that can uh, importantly right uh, Turkey's economy to uh, pave the way for a more prosperous uh, future. He um, has not distinguished himself as a great orator or as a, 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 great, a great leader type. In fact, there was some, uh, some very serious moments among this coalition of parties about who would be the presidential contender and in fact, uh, some of the others didn't really not want Kilitoral because they didn't believe that he could win. In fact, in polls going back as far as last summer and the spring before that, Kilitoral was the one possible candidate who actually Erdogan beat. But nevertheless, they came to an agreement on Kilitoral. And overall, his emphasis has been on um, a, a return to parliamentary democracy, uh, writing the uh, Turkish economy after Erdogan has mismanaged it. Uh, bringing back 
uh, Ali Babajan, who had been a deputy prime minister in the economic czar during the AKP governments during periods of significant economic growth and overall kind of toning down the kind of um, aggressive, tough type of uh, approach to governing that Erdogan and the AKP has, uh, has perfected over the course of the last 20 years. The question is, really, these are good ideas. And I think that you can uh, assume that Kilic Durillo's, uh head and heart are in the right places, whether he'll be able, should he be elected, uh, whether he'll be able to pull those things off. It's easy to uh, put these things in a wide ranging platform that is a grab bag of ideas reflecting the interests and goals of six different parties. It's another thing to actually do the kinds of things that they want, especially in a divided country where there will be uh, a, a strong, uh, strong opposition in the parliament. So I think that mm -hmm. if he wins, there'll be significant challenges going forward on every area of his agenda, including bringing uh, Turkey back to a, a parliamentary system and more democratic than it has been, as well as um, uh, as well as with regard to the economy, although the economy might be an easier hill to climb than um, changing political institutions, which are very, very hard to change, and that the AKP has had 20 years to hollow out, bend to and bend to its mm. own its own will. Mm. Um, I also want to let our viewers and listeners know we have lots of articles uh, on our website about Kilic Rolu, about the state of the economy and the domestic implications uh, of a change in leadership. We have a few minutes left. I want to get to foreign policy issues now. Uh, Stephen, I'll come to you first on this one. Uh, several of our subscribers and readers have written in. They want to know about the regional implications of Erdogan's ouster. I see... Uh, Uber Ozdemir, I see Dr. Mark Marowitz, lots of questions coming in. The regional implications for Israel, for Syria. Um, give us a quick overview. Yeah, it's, it's a great question because people are expecting, given the kind of way in which uh, Kilic Drill has painted himself as a clear alternative to Erdogan, is what this means for Turkish foreign policy. And I think that there will be some change, certainly change in tone and emphasis, but there'll be areas where there will be consistency. I think that the kind of gray zone uh, position that Turkey has uh, taken with regard to the Russian invasion of Ukraine won't change all that much. But there will be change in things, for example, like uh, the approach to the European Union. Um, there, I think that the Turkish opposition has long been interested in normalizing ties with Assad Syria. Uh, in fact, Erdogan's moves in those directions and the pronouncements that he'd like to push Syrian refugees back into Syria really is an opposition position that proved to be popular among Turks. And therefore, he took that up with regard to the Middle East more generally. I think that you won't have the same kind of activism that you once had under the AKP, which sees itself as a leader of the Muslim world, as a leader of the Middle East, mm -hmm. as, a, as a leader in the, in the Mediterranean. I think there'll be more emphasis uh, traditional emphasis within the opposition on uh, on Europe. But even there, there are problems. Turkey is further away from uh, EU accession than it has been uh, in a, than it was in 2005. Um, they have taken a strong position on Cyprus, which is a, a member of the EU, which is a, a thorny issue that will continue to plague uh, Turkey-EU relations. So overall, I think there'll be, like I said, a change of tone and change of emphasis, but it's not like there's going to be 
a sudden change in which Turkey is a non-problematic member of the NATO alliance, um, that Turkey is suddenly constructive on a range of issues that the United States and Europe have found Turkey to be obstructive on. I think there's going to be a lot more nuance because, as Gunul pointed out, you know, Turkish nationalism runs deep across political divides in Turkey. And it's important to point out that in the Nation Alliance's rather lengthy platform, uh, they were very clear to point out that Turkey will be doing things uh, in accordance with its allies and partners, but that Turkey's national interest will be front and center in foreign policy decision making. Mm. Konul, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. And specifically, I want to look at Ukraine. Turkey's had such an interesting role uh, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's, you know, providing drones to Ukraine on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, Erdogan seems to have this mutually beneficial relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin uh, of Russia. What would change if Erdogan were to lose and we have, for example, Kilic uh, as president? Well, Ravi, I think the personal chemistry between um, between the pre- two presidents is not going to be there for sure. And I agree with Stephen. I think uh, there will be both continuity and change in Turkey's foreign policy. And I think the most dramatic change is going to be in the way Turkish foreign policy decision-making is made, because the opposition pledges to reinstitutionalize Turkey's foreign policy-making under Erdogan, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs have been sidelined. Basically, Erdogan called all the shots. So that's going to change. And I think that will bring, bring some level of predictability to Turkey's foreign uh, foreign policy. But if you look at specific files, right, like Russia, for instance, uh, Erdogan, uh, the, the, the narrative here in this town is that Erdogan pursued a, a balanced policy vis-a-vis Russia after uh, the Ukraine invasion. I don't see it that way. I think Erdogan's policy has been tilted more towards Russia and under an opposition uh, government, I think Turkey will still work with Russia in places where it can, but it will probably not go out of its way to allow uh, Russia to circumvent uh, Western sanctions, for instance. And and I think that that could be a dramatic change based on uh, whether uh, U.S. whether Western countries uh, will receive will welcome that change. But on other issues too, I mean, in Syria, for instance, um, Erdogan has already made a lot of U-turns on regional policy, and Syria is one of them. Erdogan is ready to shake hands with Assad. And I think uh, an opposition government, if the opposition wins the election, that will continue. But again, there too, there could be dramatic changes. In Syria, for instance, um, opposition will, they want to normalize ties with the Assad regime. And one condition that Assad has put forward is withdrawal of Turkish troops. Um, can that happen? I think it can. Uh, if you talk to uh, people from the opposition parties, they keep saying that they can withdraw Turkish troops uh, from Syria if an understanding can be reached with the Assad regime, if Turkey's security concerns, um, if the Assad regime can assure uh, that Turkey's security concerns uh, are, are addressed. So uh, I think it, the most dramatic change could be we will be talking about a country which uh, will want to put Turkish democracy back on track. Mm. And uh, regional countries and Western countries um, will receive it differently 
than Erdogan's Turkey. So I think that will be uh, the most dramatic change. Mm. You know, I want to ask one last question and channel the many uh, thoughts, comments and questions coming in from our viewers. Stephen, this one is to you. A lot of the framing of discussions such as these and articles that we run in magazines like ours is, is to examine how Turkey would change if there's a new leader, partly because we're trying to learn, we're trying to understand what this new leader could be like, what their policies might be. But I think we also should examine the converse, what happens if Erdogan wins. And let me put that to you. If he does win, um, and then could conceivably be in power for 25 years, not 20 years, but 25 years, a quarter century. How would that change his leadership? How would it embolden him specifically with foreign policy, Stephen? It's it's a great question. And one that actually I've answered a couple of times from uh, inquisitive journalists and actually U.S. government officials who are not necessarily sold. And I think no one should be necessarily sold on a Kilic-Durola victory. I think a lot of the commentary, not necessarily the commentary in foreign policy, but the commentary more generally is has an implicit expectation that Erdogan is done. Um, and I think that we just don't know. It, the country is so divided and we just don't know what's happening in places uh, in Turkey that may tip the balance in favor of President Erdogan. We may, we may not truly understand the depth of his uh, his influence and appeal and power. So he could very well uh, win this, although he is, as I've written for foreign policy, uniquely vulnerable in ways that he hasn't been before. But if he does win, I think the I think the idea, the word that you used, emboldened, is an important one. I think he'll see it as a vindication for the way in which he has managed Turkey. I think that the, the, the persistent and steady opposition and the way in which the opposition has conducted its campaign, which has been very, very good, will embolden him to further and deepen the authoritarianism that he has been that he has wrought in Turkey over a period of time. You know, this kind of authoritarian turn, there's a debate whether he's always been an authoritarian or whether this is something that has happened as a result of you know, contingent events. But it's clear that an authoritarian turn in Turkey happened in 2007 and 2008. And this was after moments when he came to believe that the Turkish establishment would never let him rule in government and govern. So I think he will be emboldened on domestic politics. I think he'll see it as a vindication of his foreign policy and that there will be no reason to fundamentally alter many of the things uh, that he is doing. Suddenly, he is not going to be a warm and fuzzy Erdogan. Um, and I think that it is... Uh, entirely, entirely possible that we could be talking about a Turkey that is l even less competitive of a of an authoritarian system, and one that is in which he has tightened his grip, in which the all of the processes that we've talked about that Kilicerolo wants to decentralize, he will tighten his grip as a result of this win, if mm. he should win. Stephen Cook. Thanks for coming. And that was Stephen Cook and Gonul Tol. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see who else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's editor in chief. I'll see you soon. Thank you.